0: Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Robert Younghans, and he'll be answering your questions on bugs, bugs, and more bugs. The show Mm -hmm. will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the internet. If you'd like to ask Robert a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, And use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we sure, oh, I guess that's now X, right? (laughs) Formerly known as Twitter. We'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast, and when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. Let other people know about the great show that we have going on tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask about Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Robert about Bugs, Bugs, and More Bugs. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding Rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit Lee's Ferry Anglers dot com or call them at eight hundred nine six two nine seven five five. That's Lee's Ferry Anglers dot com or call them at eight hundred nine six two nine seven five five. Before we introduce Robert, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Robert's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winner at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away Robert's DVD set, The Bug Guy, entomology for the fly fisher. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question at the end of the show. And the question will be about something we talked about during the show. And you must submit your answer along with your name, your location, using that text box on the home page. It's the same text box that you can use to ask questions during the show. So listen closely and use your best typing skills and pay attention, take notes, and Maybe you'll win Robert's DVD set, The Bug Guy Entomology for the Fly Fisher. Our guest tonight is Robert Younghans. Robert has been a guest lecturer across the Western United States on the topic of aquatic entomology and is a master fly fishing instructor. As a contributing writer to Field and Streams Fly Talk with The Bug Guy Robert, offers helpful advice on entomology and fly selection to fly fishers all over the globe. Also look for Robert's regular article, Hatch Happening with the Bug Guy, featured in Trout Magazine in every issue. Robert is a SIMS ambassador and Orvis endorsed guide and has conducted entomology classes for both SIMS and Orvis guides at their national gatherings, as well as for Trout Unlimited and other local organizations across the country. He has been on the World Fishing Network, the Fishful Thinker, on Altitude Sports, on ESPN Radio, and in Rick Takahashi's book, Modern Terrestrials. Robert has also produced his nationally best-selling two-set DVD, The Bug Guy Entomology for the Fly Fishing. Additionally, Robert is the owner and lead instructor of the Colorado Fly Fishing Guide Academy. Robert, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Roger. I I feel like I've made the big time now because I've seen the list of amazing guests that you've had on your podcast. And I thought, you know, someday I'm going to cut the mustard here. I'm going to be on. And so when I got (laughs) the call, I thought, you know what? I think I finally made it in this industry. So it's an honor to be on. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'm a determining factor, but you are
0: correct in that I've had just some incredible people on here. Yeah, um, I saw the the list.
1: You have it's it's an amazing podcast, and I really am honored to be uh, be part of this this evening.
0: And also, um, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it also shows you know how willing people in our industry are to share their knowledge. And you know, our guests are not paid; they do it out of their own goodwill. And it's just incredible that so many people have shared their (laughs) super detailed information about fly fishing. And I know a lot of people have learned a lot from those, from our guests on the show. So now you are one of them.
1: So, um, so I'm going to pick your brain. Roger, I (laughs) I have to say that I I guess we had some miscommunication. I thought I was getting a check in the mail, so I'm probably going to hang up right now. Uh, But thank you very much. (laughs) No, No, of course. Well, as I say, you can't monetize the information you can share with people in the industry that you have passion for. And again, we have, what I would say, uh, I mean, I always say that trout live in beautiful places and we have the best office in the world. I'm just very fortunate to have a wife that makes good money and has insurance. And that's probably the same <laughs> with me, people <laughs> in the fly fishing industry. So um, yeah. so I'm glad to yeah. do it. And again, and this is opens up this important topic that we're going to talk about because it's probably the biggest blind spot yeah. for, for people in fly fishing is understanding their bugs. And we don't want to make it intimidating. We want to make it productive. We want to make it fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I am so happy that you are one of the uh, the kept gentlemen out there in the fly fishing world. That's, that's really <laughs> indeed fortunate for you. <laughs> indeed. Not not all of us have that. But <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but right. yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let's talk bugs. Um, you're the bug guy, right? I mean, that's what people call you. So uh, you even said, uh, you were telling me before the show tonight that Somebody stopped you on the street, and not even in your hometown, and said, are you the bug guy? And so you must be famous in your own right out there.
1: I guess yeah, literally a guy that had done some guiding, and he had seen a few of my stickers from sponsors. I think that's good advice to not over-decal your car, because as we know, it, this can be a kind of an expensive sport, and if they see all those fancy stickers and things but i do have uh, the ultimate rod case for my rod holder and it's i think it honestly is and i'm not trying to pimp them out but um they were some of my clients and they started these beautiful rod cases that are probably the most secure that you can find and he saw the bug guy on there and and he stopped me and he's like the typical question he goes you know i've been doing this a long time and he goes you know i just don't really know i look at hatches i look at bugs and i look at my fly boxes and i'm trying to kind of Do it As Ernie Schwibert said, uh, the book came out in the early 60s. Some of those were kind of the godfathers of fly fishing. The term match the hat, that's Ernie Schwibert. One of the greatest books ever to come out in fly fishing, along with some others we can talk about later. And uh, we got into a discussion about that, and I said, you know what? I said, I hear it all the time. I said, it's like being a, um, you know, well, I'm a preacher, but I don't know the Bible, or you know what? I'm a lifeguard, but I really don't know how to swim. And I think in fly fishing, It's the one thing that gets avoided because I think people sometimes think it's the cast, and sure, it's those things in presentation, but I think from a technical and a knowledge standpoint, entomology is probably the most intimidating and the most difficult aspect for people to up their game in fly fishing, and it's amazing. Literally, just hours before we had a chance to talk, this guy came up to me, seeing the car right on the street, and we had a big conversation about it, and I said, hey, you know what? You gotta watch Ask About Fly Fishing Podcast tonight or you gotta listen to it and hopefully he's listening now because we literally yeah. had that conversation. You are correct.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very cool.
1: Well let's talk, you
0: know, we'll talk about the major orders of insects that are particularly important to us as fly fishers. And I think everybody sure. probably knows them. But and I've seen this myself or experienced it myself or been with people where yeah, you're on the river or on the lake and you're just confused. Something's flying around. What is it? I can't even tell. I can't even catch one to see what it is. And is it important or is it not important? So let's try to make it easy for people to get a hold, like you said earlier, to get a hold of what's going on on the water and what's important for us to know. So let's just start with mayflies to begin with and uh, kind of work through the orders here tonight. But yeah, let's talk about them. And each of these orders have different life cycles. And I think you tell us. How important is that life cycle
1: to us as fly fishers? Well, it's pivotal in the sense of matching, you know, patterns to life cycles. So let me back up just a little bit. I will say that there's about 12 to 13 aquatic orders that we have in the United States. And we tend to focus mostly on mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, and midges. And then there's alternative taxa that we actually look at as well. And it's important. In fact, if I try not to get too sciencey when I'm teaching, there are some really, there's one core principle that I really try to do in part on my students or even when I'm guiding, if people are interested in that. And that's another thing that's cool because a lot of times when you're on the water, people love to, let's say the fishing's slow. I mean, they want to learn a little more about bugs. They want to answer the questions that you just asked me, you know, and so you, it's a teaching moment especially at the fishing slow, right? So you can actually, like, hey, we're not catching fish, but I can tell you what's in the water. And when you start with these different orders, particularly mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, and midges are four main aquatic orders that we think about in the context of uh, fly fishing. We do have different life cycles. And so the, the real, this is about as technical as I'll get. And if I start to get a little too fancy on, you know, like I said, just pull me back. But What's really important is to understand the simple distinction between complete and incomplete metamorphosis because that's a huge distinction. And we could talk about that specifically if we want to, but as it relates to mayflies, they go through what's called incomplete metamorphosis, which means you're going to have basically an egg, a nymph, and an adult, right? And we do want to have patterns that represent those different life cycles. And then when we get into the other order, sometimes we have complete metamorphosis where we have a pupil stage and a larval stage. And why does that matter? It matters because we do want to have patterns that represent the life cycles of these specific orders. That's really important. And to be able to identify that in their development so that we go out there and go, oh, okay, well, I'm seeing either adults on the water. I'm not seeing anything in particular when I'm, you know, pulling up a rock or whatever, I don't really know what that is, deciphering fish feeding behavior. What are the fish doing? Are they feeding on top? Are they sipping? Are they busting out of the water? Are we seeing no surface activity? Well, that's not so much about the fish feeding. That's much more about what the insects are doing and the fish reacting to that as a food source, right? And so as we start with mayflies, the first thing we want to be able to do, and, you know, the first slide, Roger, that I ever have on anything is to become an observer because you can go mm-hmm. to any fly shop in the world and they'll say, these are the flies that are working. And they give you that little plastic cup. We all get that, right? Get those <laughs> yeah, <stuff>. yeah. <laughs> and I sometimes ask people, so why did you choose that fly? They said, well, they gave it to me at the fly shop. And I'm like, do you know? And I try not to ask in a way that's, that makes them feel insecure, but I just say, hey, do you know what, uh, so why, why did you pick that fly? And they were like, um, Well, it's sparkly, and it's kind of pretty. And I always say, you know, there's not much luck in fly fishing, and it really is a science. It doesn't have to be elitist, but it can be something that can be fun, that can expand your game, especially with the bugs. And so with the mayflies, you want to know that life cycle. So you want to understand that incomplete metamorphosis. You want to understand egg, nymph, and adult. So we're going to have nymph patterns. We're going to have adult patterns. And then we can also have spinners as well, which – whether we want to get into that after they've mated. But the big thing is, you know, I always say I can speak all the Latin I want to, Roger, and I can try to impress people and make them think I'm smart, but I don't think trout speak Latin. Last time I checked, I don't really think they care. (laughs) They just go, that's something I want to eat, and our job becomes as fly fishers to, to match the hatch, to imitate that imitation, whether it's going to be subsurface, whether it's going to be in the film, or whether it's going to be as an adult or whether it's going to be a spinner that's come back to the water after it's mated. That's kind of the thing. And you don't necessarily have to know the fancy names.
0: Yeah, so when we're talking about mayfies, you said egg, nymph, and then adult. Well, we're not, we're never concerned with the egg as fly fishers, but we're concerned with the nymph. And then there are the stages as it becomes an adult, right? So, And what are those important stages?
1: Well, what we're looking at is again, like we do even with matching the hatch, which generally refers to the adult, we're looking at development cycles. so what we're looking at when we do some collecting, and I will say as a caveat to that, you know we can talk for five hours, Roger, but if you don't go out and collect and have a little saying, and you know, and I don't care if it's a fancy one or not, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about isn't going to really it's not going to resonate with anybody because you have to get out there and get in the water. And even if you don't know what it is, at least look at the size, color, and profile of that development. And so you might find a bunch of mayfly nymphs and then you're like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I don't know if that's a betis, maybe that's a blue quill, maybe that's a mahogany dun. maybe that's a calabatus. You know, I don't know, it could be a lot of, you know, I mean, we have, um, shoot, what's 16 well 1200 species nationwide of just mayflies i mean along oh, there in, the in the state that we live in i was able to describe a new species which was kind of fun i think we're at 113 species of mayfly and i always joke so you have to have 113 different flies <laughs> to actually right right you know i'm trying well, to and sell fly on the side right 113 nymphs, and yeah. then we have to have and the adults. other ones. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. If you saw my fly box collection, I have a writer on my insurance, honestly, just for my fly fishing equipment, and that's an important thing. I, I just want to say this because I tell all my students, put your card or contact information on your fly box because here's the deal. You can, you know, I'm sponsored by Winston. They're great to me, and they give me these $1,000 rods, but I'll tell you, that $1,000 rod that I have is less expensive than that one box of mayfly nymphs that I have. And I've lost fly boxes, and I've gotten almost every single one of them back because it had my name on it. And so that's just a little bit of a little helpful hint from Heloise to, to date myself a bit. But that's very important. Yeah, that so yeah, basically...
0: happens. Yeah, when I was fishing with a friend outside of Bozeman on a small creek, he slipped and kind of semi fell in, not all the way in. But he lost his fly box. And later that morning, I was just working my way up this creek and here in a little eddy, you know, I mean, little, what I'm talking about is three feet around, right? Here's his yeah. fly box going around in a circle. And I just picked it up. And yeah, so right. you never know. Uh, yeah, And, you yeah. know,
1: and if that would have been somebody else, because here's the deal. Because we are fly fishers, we are elitist, and we are snobs. We would always return that. Now, if you were just a bait fisherman, you would just keep it, and you would sell it on eBay. I'm totally kidding. But we've all found stuff, and if there's no name on it, then that's what we call river booty. You get to keep it. And I know people don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about bugs. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's always kind of an important thing. So I think that we'll get into fly box organization. But the bottom line, from the nymph standpoint, one of the things, and I think as you get familiarized with your local – waters, you're going to kind of start to know, well, what should I be seeing before I even get there? What kind of nymphs should I see? When is the the trico hatch? When am I going to see PMDs? Those types of things like that. And what do they look like? And all I want people to be able to do is to know their orders at stream site. And the analogy that I like to give Roger is that if right now you and I and anybody that's listening, if we just hopped on a plane and we went to Africa and we went to the Ovonga Delta in Botswana, we would be able to go, oh, that's an elephant. Okay, that's a rhinoceros. That's an alligator. That's a hippo. Well, if you're in fly fishing, why can't we collect? Because this all has to do with actually going in the water and collecting it before you actually do this, because it's not always about the adults that we're seeing their hatching. Why can't we go to the water and go, oh, you know, I don't know what kind of mayfly it is. I don't know if that's a black rhino or a white rhino. I'm not really sure, but I know it's a rhino. Why can't we go, that's a mayfly, that's a stonefly, that's a caddisfly, that's a midge, that's a worm. Why can't we do that? And I think, so when it comes to the nymphal cycle, getting back to our point with mayflies is that, you know, we just look and we go, you know what, I'm seeing a lot of tricho nymphs right now. I'm seeing a lot of PMD nymphs. I'm seeing a lot of uh, blue quills. I mean, there can be a lot of things like that. And you may not know exactly what they are, but the point is to be able to identify that in size, color, and profile as a mayfly. And that's something we, I don't want to get too far ahead of the game, but that's where we start getting into uh, having, you know, a box. And these are my mayfly nymphs. And there's nothing wrong with extracting one from the water and sticking it right there in your fly box with, your pheasant tails and your PMD things, the things that you have and put it up there and go, you know what? And it goes to that, it's not necessarily matching the hatch, but matching what's in the actual general river. shape.
0: Yeah. General yeah, shape. Yeah. You know, as we say,
1: you know, is it, what's more important presentation or pattern selection? And I always like to say, who do you love more, your daughter or your son, you know, yeah. because you can't separate that. You can have the perfect fly, but if your presentation is off, it's probably not going to work. You can have really good presentation, and you might have throw something out there, and you don't even know what it is, something stupid you got from the fly shop, and it may be very productive. But what's fun is when you can start to put a name on it and say, you know what? I know that's a rhinoceros. That's what that is. I know that's a mayfly. I know that's a caddisfly, that type of thing. And then we get yeah. into the rest of the life cycles, which is going to be looking at our yeah. emergers. And uh, as they're emerging out, basically, um, that could be an RS2. That could be lots of things like that when it comes to pattern selection. But, and then we start getting into adults, and then we start getting into spinners, which is going to be, again, after they mate and they spin after they mate. I always say it's a great way to die because what happens – we call mayflies ephemeroptera, coming from the Greek word ephemeral because they only live several hours to just a few days. And they live Mm -hmm. 99 – everyone says 99.9%. It's probably higher than that. I could probably put more nines behind the decimal as nymphs. That's what they do because they have one job, which is basically to emerge, to fly off, fly out of either the lake or the pond or the river. They mate, and then they die. That's basically what they do. And then then when they die, they spin around. It's the way that their wings are oriented. So we actually have spinner patterns where you see the fly tied with the wings – out to the left and right of the fly, rather than straight up, more like a sailboat, as we like to say. How long do they live as an imps? About a year. Generally, mayflies have a one-year life cycle. I could get into bivoltine and semivoltine and things like that. Voltine is their life cycle, but generally mayflies are going to be, most of them are a year um, as opposed to some of the other orders, which can be one to three years, or they can even skip a generation, and it can be one every okay. other year, but that they're enough. always going to be about a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so
0: so really, from what you just described, you really should be in your box having nymph patterns in different sizes, because we don't know what size we're going to uh, come right. across out there, emergers, adults, and spinners. And then you've really got the, the mayflies covered as far as their life cycle exactly, goes. Exactly,
1: exactly. And I'll tell you what, if they're, if you go to a fly shop and they don't have their flies separated into aquatic orders, then I don't know why they're a fly shop. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. You're going to mm. go to a fly shop and you're going to see mayflies. You're going to see stoneflies. You're going to see midges. You're going to see eggs and worms and crustaceans. You're going to see your streamers. You're going to see some of your warm water stuff. You're going to see your salt water stuff. I mean, you hope that any fly shop would actually do that. And what you're going to see in that, as you break down that division, you're going to see your mayfly nymphs, and then you're going to see some mergers, and you're going to see some adults, and you're going to see spinners, and it's going to be sequenced. You know, I like to say this, Roger. I get paid to organize people's fly boxes sometimes, and I always like to say in my presentations, I'm like, I'll look at boxes, and I kid you not, there will be, like, someone's got, like, a fly for a peacock bass, and a Marlin, and then a San Juan Worm, and then a size 22 parachute <laughs> Adams. And I'm like, did you get drunk and just break into a fly shop and just steal all the crap that you possibly could and just stuck it in the box? I mean, there is no – I mean, if you organized your shoes and closet like that, you would never be able to walk out of the house. And yeah, yet, yeah. you know, being able to have your mayfly nymphox, you know, I mean, you can get as crazy as you want about it and as anal as you want about it, as I like to say, but at least say, you know what, these are my general – Mayfly nymph imitations, and these are my adults, and these are my spinners. And it's gonna, and you're so much more efficient on the water because you're being that observer, and all of a sudden things change. The feeding behavior changes immediately, and then what's happening, and that's usually relative to what's happening with the insects. Trout are always eating, they're kind of like cows, they graze all the time, and they have amazing eyesight. When it, I mean, we could go into what fish see, and there's all kinds of studies on their. How many cones they have and there's all kinds of interesting studies on fish but bottom line is just to be ready and efficient because let's be honest you know fly fishing has a lot of complications and the winds there and you're trying to change out flies and but ultimately what you're doing though and what makes it so fun is that is you're being an observer again you know what's coming up what am i seeing under these rocks what am i collecting and you don't you know i could blow you up with all kinds of fancy latin names it really doesn't matter. But I think it does matter to know that, hey, I'm looking at a mayfly in particular. And if you and just so to get so we know, how do we know a mayfly nymph if I'm just going to just kind of piggyback off of that? Hold it right. Um,
0: Hold it right there, Robert. I'm going to stop you right there so we can take a quick break. And let's come back and talk about that, just where you left off and also talk about, you know, the observation on the screen. So hang tight. We'll be right back. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of -of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, that's uglybugflyshop.com, or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Robert Younghance about bugs, bugs, and more bugs. If you'd like to ask Robert a question, just go to our homepage to askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Now, Robert, I always stop and pause here for a minute and ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So share with everybody uh, what's happening with you.
1: Well, I do want to say that i that's one of my favorite fly shops, the Ugly Bug, although I do take a sense with the name, because uh, I've never found a bug that I thought was <laughs> ugly. But I do okay. love those guys at <laughs> Casper, and uh, I've spent a lot of time finding some pretty awesome patterns. They have one in particular that I don't know if we could even talk about it, but there's one, it's one of the guide flies up there and that's a great, the great shop. So not saying that to suck up, generally though, I've spent a lot of time in that shop up there and, and yeah. that's where I learned to cut my teeth really nymphing. It was on the North Platte, actually at oh, Casper, one of my yeah. favorite places in the world. I love that place. So, yeah, um, cool. but yeah, but as far as, I think as I've kind of graduated, into doing a lot of international trips. We do just got back from Colombia for Payara and took some clients down there for Payara and Peacock Bass into the really remote regions of the Darien Gap and Colombia there. And then I've been doing trips to Cinco Rios down in Chile for about 12 years. So we're going to be taking a group and actually, if anyone's interested, I do need, I do, we have some spots open for that. We'll be doing some red fishing in November for that. And then I try to set a lot of saltwater trips up to the different, you know, I'm no Jeff Courier. Jeff's amazing. I don't (laughs) pretend to have his resume, but I do a lot of that. And then my favorite thing really is just to go across the country and to talk about bugs and get people really turned on to those in Dallas and California and back east and Pennsylvania and New Jersey, places like that. That's probably my favorite thing to do. Unfortunately, I'm a little gimped up right now, so I haven't been doing a lot of guiding, but I do guide for the Broadmoor on their private water, which um, unfortunately you have to either be a member. It's pretty pretty high and snobby stuff. It's like uh, trying to fly fish in the UK. You know, you can only fish upstream on a dry to a fish that you see that are rising. The Broadmoor is a great place, but you either have to stay there or be there with a guest. So I mostly guide, you know, private water. And then we're still working on some new books. And the one disadvantage of the DVD, as we had talked about earlier, is that even my DVD probably has spider webs on it. I find that the old generation still has DVDs. So we're trying to work on that a little bit and still doing articles. I haven't done anything for Trout, but Kirk Dieter is an amazing man. He's an amazing editor and he's been really good to me. And I love doing articles for Trout Unlimited Magazine, which is the Actually, largest distribution, even though it's quarterly, of any magazine within our industry, which is actually kind of nice. And so I kind of just keep my toes dipped into that stuff. And uh, because I don't do public, I get a lot of requests to do guiding. The places that I guide are private, so a lot of times you have to be associated with uh, the place that actually owns that water. And so it can be difficult. Uh, that's, but I'll tell you, given where I live on the South Platte, and as you probably know, the combat fishing that goes on in Deckers and Cheeseman and 11-mile Canyon. It is kind of nice to actually have earned a spot just to kind of do private water and do Disneyland fishing, as I like to call it. Yeah, uh, it's fun. So, yeah. But that's fun. Yeah, And then also Rainbow Falls is a big thing up there. I helped kind of start that operation with the owner. And so that's a great place for newbies and also for the elderly, uh, for clients that I've had for years that really just don't have the physical capabilities to get out there, but they can sit in a car, in a chair, and they can – actually get out there and catch fish and cool. they might be in their 80s. And I think that's a great thing because they're still doing something they like to do and they don't have to try to negotiate, you know, the South Platte or a big river. And so they can do some lake fishing or fish on the small creek. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm certainly not snobby yeah. about that. So that's kind of the stuff that I'm doing. So. Yeah. So, Robert, how do people get a hold of you if they want to go on
0: one of your hosted trips or private guiding or those kind of sure. things? Sure. Well, well thank you for
1: asking Um, Yeah. yeah, Usually if you just go to a truck stop, if you go like in the middle (laughs) stall, you'll see my phone number. It's right there. It usually says Robert the Bug Guy, and I'm easy to reach. In all seriousness, um, if you go to the Bug Guy official on Instagram, or if you go to uh, Facebook, I do have the-bug-guy.com, thebugguy.com. But because we're needing downloadable versions of the DVD, things are shut down right now. So, and i Promised you that I would try to get those up before we had our conversation, and due to some just personal issues that I've been dealing with up here, I haven't had a chance to do that. But basically, you can get a hold of me through Instagram at the Bug Guy Official, and that is trademarked, by the way, and uh, or you can just go to Robert Young Hans on Facebook and just message me that way. And, and hopefully, in the next few months, I'll get my the Bug Guy sites up again. And I do, by the way, the Colorado Fly Fishing Guide Academy. I just wanted to just mention. That right now that's being revamped, so that's not happening. But we did that for about nine years, and we put uh, gosh, I don't know how many women guides, which were always the best. We got the, We got a lot of women on the water, which I think was fantastic, and also a lot of a lot of vets. We got a, a lot of guys coming back from the desert that needed to do something that was going to work for them. And so we put a mm-hmm. lot of guys on the water and women as well guiding. And so with the Colorado Fly Fishing Guide Academy, but right now that's not operative, but we're getting that back up and running. So that's, that's kind of what's going on. So thanks for asking. All right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's get back to talking about the mayflies and we were talking about observation and uh, I have a question for you about, sure. you know, you said picking up rocks and so forth. So is it important when you come up to a stream? to find a the right place in the stream to pick up rocks, looking for nymphs, and so forth? Where's the best place to find the bugs?
1: A hundred percent, yes. One of the things you learn is, and I think there's probably a million analogies, you're not going to look for a polar bear in the middle of the Sahara Desert, right? And you could look at rivers like that a little bit. And that, you probably don't want to Open up this rabbit hole, but you know, honestly, Roger, what we look at is habitat orientation and taxonomy and the morphology of aquatic invertebrates. And so, what you're going to find is that you're going to find insects that have adapted physiologically to their aquatic environment within river systems and also within still water. What we have still water being lentic systems and moving water being lotic like locomotion right so rivers and streams anything moving and so you might find certain types of insects in the eddies and the slower water and things like that and that might be something to think about during pattern selection and then you are going to find other things so we have you know basically we have clingers so you're going to see like with mayflies you're going to see these mayflies that have clinging and they have suction structures on their abdomens and things like that that help them say in faster water, a great one is the green drake. That's our, I don't know if we have a state insect, but I know within fly fishing, it's the Colorado green drake. And it's actually called that. That's our green drake catch. There's actually three species, which I won't bore you with the technical names, but we have three species of green drakes. And this is where it goes back to that observer thing, Roger, is that they're all different sizes. They all kind of look like these big mayflies with these green wings but the the drunella grandis the real big one that's a size 12 or 14 and then we drop down and there's three different species and they hatch at different times during the summer i mean that's kind of important now and you'd probably be able to recognize that green drake because you're like wow that's a big big mayfly and it has kind of green wings and it's way bigger than a betis would be right a blue wing olive so we know that probably has to be a green drake, and so we go to our dry fly box and we try to match it up and go, wow, is that a twelve? Is that a ten? Is it a fourteen? You know, what size is it? Trying to match that up basically, and uh, so it's. I think it's important to uh, again going back to that observational thing, looking at that. But as habitat orientation goes, you're going to have your. This isn't mayfly specific, but you're going to have your pond skaters that we see, and you're going to have your water boatmen and your back swimmers. I mean, they're going to be in still water. They're going to be in certain types of water. And the same specifically, you're going to have certain mayflies that like to be in the really fast water, and they're going to have physical structures that let them actually exist there, to answer your question directly.
2: Mm-hmm. And you're right. going to
1: have other, particularly betas. And I want to point this out with blueing olives and betas and things like that. I think most people probably that fly fish... Kind of know what I'm talking about. I'm a blue wing olive. There's 12 species within the western United States of different blue wing olives betas. That's an important hatch that we have. And different size, colors, and profiles. They hatch at different times. But they're what we call a swimming mayfly. They're not going to be in the fast water. They're going to be kind of off to the edges, and they look like little minnows. And we actually even call them minnow mayflies. So so Mm. the question you're really asking me is about habitat orientation, Where do you find – well, the hippos, getting back to my Africa now, they're going to be in, (laughs) like, where moose like to hang out. Where does a moose like to hang out? They like boggy, you know, areas with all that vegetation. That's where a moose is going to hang out. Well, you know what? That's a great question that you asked because different mayflies are going to – and you're going to find – now, here's where you're not going to find anything is usually in slow, deep pools. You're not going to find them on rivers. You're going to find anything in there. Um, it needs and, to be but,
0: oxygenated, oxygenated, oxygenated.
1: Yeah, say it. <laughs> they, yeah I- exactly. Because it's what call oxygen level. <laughs> yeah, dissolved oxygen levels is very important, and there's also no structure usually in the deeper pools. So, I mean, you might find something, but stoneflies are called stoneflies for a reason because they want to hang out under stones. I mean, that's basically why they're called that. Mayflies the same thing. So they want protection from predation. That's an important thing, and so you'll find that these those particular insects, like it might be easy to collect if you're out there with a seine and, you know, sayings are really, really important. And I really encourage people to reach out to me if they'd like to find a good seine, because there's a company that I actually worked with in, here in Colorado to design good landing net sayings It's basically, it's just a, a mesh bag that goes over your landing net, but mm-hmm. they're really great. And it, And I would say, honestly, if you don't have something to collect with, because you can turn over a few rocks, Roger, but you know, if you really want to see what's out there, you need to go and collect some bugs and look at your saying. And that's something that I push. I mean, I'll even give them away to people on the river and say, someone that's strong, i say, here, take one of these sayings. They're 15 bucks. And I think that is as important as your $800 fly rod and your $600 reel and your $100 line, your $700 waders and your $300 boots, You've got all that stuff going. But how about okay. good eye protection and how about a seine? That would be two, mm-hmm. two you know, sun, good glasses and a good seine to do your actual collecting. So I don't know. I got off talking. I don't know if I answered your question, but well, anyway, that's kind you, of you. You
0: did, and part. what you told me in in my mind was, it depends. <laughs> you yeah. know, it depends on the bug, and you gotta. You may need to seine in one part of the river because it's a, a you know a, a strong you know riffle and yeah. There may be slower water where you might have to re again because the bugs are different living there. So it's not exactly. as simple. And my question was simple, but the answer is not so simple. <laughs> so, no, exactly. and, right. yeah. and that's probably the, the answer. And since 2006, since I've been doing this, when I asked guests a question is, you know, that I, the answer that I get most often is, well, it depends, <laughs> you know? yeah, so, uh, yeah, right. And you didn't say that, but you said it in, well, maybe
1: a few hundred words, but, sure. but that's well, what it comes down to, right? Is, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of variability when yeah. it comes to that. And we do make distinctions between what you're going to find... Like, there's really only three major mayflies that occur in Stillwater. And we and that's going to be your Calibatus, which a lot of people know about. That's a big one. And then we have our big yellow mayfly, what we call Hexagenia limbata. That can be different species and genus, and they're all the same family. But the Michigan mayfly, the hexfly, the fishfly, there's a lot of different names for them. Common names can be confusing because they are regional, and sometimes they're even localized. So it can mm-hmm. be difficult. Like, we don't talk about the Hendrickson hatch like they do on the East Coast. And there, hopefully we have some East Coast listeners that understand that. But we still have one. We just don't call it that. We call them different, you know, we have different names for them. And so mm-hmm. sometimes that's why the Latin does work. But, yeah, so habitat orientation actually is, is very important, literally to where they're going to be. Are they going to be on the fringes? Are they going to be in the fast water? You're going to find green drakes. And this has to do with, like, okay, where do I want to fish that green drake nymph? Because I've seen some, found some. Well, I'm, I'm, there's probably going to be fish that are staging maybe right at the bottom of a pool. Um, they're right at the rapid and really fast water. And you'll even see fish feeding sometimes either because they're wanting to oxygenate to get higher because the DO levels are higher. That's why we put those bubblers in our fish tanks, right? We need to keep that water moving. And this is something I always want to stress. It can be a hard tool to use sometimes if you don't know what to do with it. I certainly have tools in my garage like that. I'm like, you know, I'm this is, supposed to help me with angles, but I don't know how to work the thing, so it doesn't do me a lot of good. But I'll tell you what, temperature is the number one indicator of what happens within an aquatic ecosystem, bar none. It's all yeah. temperature-based, and that varies every single season relative to snow amount, relative to how much water's coming through there. That's always going to vary. What kind of a summer are we having? What's going on globally as far as climate and warming and things like that? I mean, those are always things that are going to play into it, and so that has to, and that's going to affect our fish. And the main thing is a particularly dissolved, DO levels, the, as we say, dissolved oxygen, that's going to affect our insects, their feeding. It's going to affect feeding behavior of fish, how aggressive they are. A lot of our fish here in Colorado, for instance, when that water gets warm, uh, they feel like they're on top of a 14er. They're on the top of Pikes Peak or something like that. They just don't have the oxygen because the water's too warm. And so some places like Montana They'll shut down their fisheries, which I admire. I think that's amazing that they will actually shut down a fishery because of what's going on with temperature. Temperature is the number one thing for hatches, no matter what order we're talking about, for the, how, whether the fish are going to live or die, mortality rates. It's the number one thing that dictates everything within an aquatic ecosystem and what's happening. And that's not helping people understand bugs necessarily. It does indirectly, but that's a really big thing that, you know, it's not bad to have a little thermometer with you when you're fishing just to kind of say, oh, look, we have caddis hatching. What's the temperature? temperature? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's, that's kind of an important thing. Robert, hang tight.
0: Another little break here and we'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure and visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet radio podcast, and we're talking with Robert Younghance about bugs, bugs, more bugs. If you want to ask a question, go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it, and we'll try to get it answered tonight on the show. Okay, so Robert, we're going to have to not that you don't talk fast enough, but we're gonna to have to pick up the pace and <laughs> well, you know We've only
1: talked about one order. Yeah, we, we I know. Probably need to address at least uh, move on to some other orders yeah, because yeah. honestly, maybe we'll have to have a part two or three at some but, point. But we could teach an entire yeah, semester yeah. on a collegiate level just with on Mayflies <laughs> for sure. So we probably. I have a question
0: that's not on, on, on Mayflies though. So, uh, but this should be a. Well, maybe not a quick answer, but try to keep it short. Um, What's with the biting flies that are around this summer? I don't remember in all the years I've been in Colorado (laughs) that there have been so many biting flies.
1: What's (laughs) happening with that? Well, um, okay, I'm going to pivot that to, you know what? If you don't have some black fly imitations as a terrestrial, (laughs) because those flies are generally terrestrial, they're in the order of diptera. So they're the same order as midges, actually. Those just happen to be terrestrial ones. We had a very moist season and those flies actually go through their life cycle. The eggs are laid usually in soil or plants. And they're much more productive when we have a lot of moisture and we had a lot of rain this year, at least locally and so the bottom line is they definitely had a lot of babies and they're out there biting us. And some of those are what we call horse flies and deer flies, which are called tabanides. Some of them are just other types of biting flies, but the bottom line is one of the most underfish patterns is spiders and flies, actual flies, huh. and also bees and wasps. So just to kind of tag on to that. That's something that I don't recommend someone has a whole box just filled with bees and wasps. Uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit. That's even more yeah. little over the top for me, but yeah. So that's yeah. what it is. Huh. So basically nice clients to, to have lots of babies. Yeah. Lots yeah. of babies. Yeah.
0: Okay. A couple of questions to finish up with mayflies. The questions that came in from our audience, Rick Takahashi, a good friend of yours wrote in ah. and yeah, he says, what species of mayfly does a quill red quill and Quill Gordon
1: represents. Oh, yes. So he, well, okay. Well, I will tell Rick that one thing we generally don't do is fish to species, okay? We do sometimes, right? So there's going to be 12 species of blueing olive, but we're probably going to have two or three patterns that are going to match. And some of that is going to be regional. But basically, it's in the family of heptogeneity. And that's a, you know, thanks a lot, Rick. You're going to make me speak Latin, but those are going to be heptogeneids is what we call them. And then there could be some other variations on that. But what I would tell the average fly fisher, I mean, Rick is on a different level because of course he had me help with this book. So I have to say nice things about him, but the bottom line (laughs) is when it comes to common names and mayflies, a really good book is McCafferty, Pat McCafferty. And that is entomology and flight. I can't think of the actual title, but it's Pat McCafferty. It's one of the quintessential books on the bibliographies that I put out. And if you want to know mayflies and their common names and you want to match those up with species, he has an appendices in the back. And it will tell you either Eastern or Western. So that's the problem that we run into. We talked about that Hendrickson on the East Coast. So, mm-hmm. whereas, you know what, we have these mahogany duns and that's kind of our same thing. We, you know, a dun being an adult, a sexually mature mayfly. So we have to... Okay, Robert, cut to, <laughs> cut to the chase.
0: Cut to the chase. Yeah, the bottom line <laughs> is that
1: heptogeneity, and the thing is, if you really want to know, get Pat McCafferty's book on <laughs> fly fishing and entomology, and you can look in the back and you can look at all those species names and you're ready to go. So that's, okay. But it usually doesn't affect us in a practical way on the water. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, those are two very common flies, especially I think on the East Coast. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Used to be a mm-hmm. shop called Quill Gordons up in the, on the Bighorn up there, but sure. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly. So they're just representative of mayflies, basically, of and probably exactly. And they're the in, the, colors, and they're in that... the color is the color is going to be the match
1: kind of thing. Yeah, right? and that can even and that can even change depending. I mean, I've seen three different colors of PMDs and Quill Gordons. That's the thing where it's an out, but You really have to just, you know, and being able to identify a sexually mature adult mayfly, there's not a lot of people that can do it. And I certainly can't either unless I, you, and I always joke about this, but if you want to do that, you have to get very invasive and you have to look at adult insect mayflies and look at their genitalia under a microscope. And if you're getting that crazy, then you should probably do what I do for a living. Otherwise, it's going to spoil (laughs) your whole fly fishing experience because you don't need to be looking at insect genitalia under a microscope because that's the only way you're going to find that stuff out.
0: All right. Tan Takami in Jackson, Wyoming says, do yellow sallies hatch in the water or crawl to the shore? If they hatch in the water, are there yellow sally emergers?
1: Yes. And that's a stonefly just for our listeners. And it can be an isoperla is what they're called. But here's the deal. No, there is no mayfly although that is a common misperception that emerges directly out of the water. All mayflies crawl out of the shore, unlike all of our other aquatic orders, at least the main ones. What you'll see sometimes is them either dropping eggs or drinking. And so I get asked that question a lot because it looks like they're emerging out of the water column directly from the rivers and they do not. And I would, and people will argue with me and want to fight me about that. But I promise you that Yellow sallies do not emerge directly out of the water column. The ones you're seeing on the water have returned back to the water for whatever reason they want to, you know, which is usually drinking or for ovipositing of eggs.
0: Okay. Let's talk, let's break off here and talk about the fly box organization quickly. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. How do you organize your fly boxes? How do you go about that?
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's start with mayflies. I think we kind of addressed that. So I'm going to have mayfly nymphs. I'm going to have my adults. And I'm going to have my spinners, right? Let's go to caddis. Caddis, I'm going to have my mayfly larva, right? I'm going to have my mayfly pupa. I'm sorry, I mean, I'm going to have my caddis for caddisfly. I'm going to have my caddisfly larva. I'm going to have my caddisfly pupa. I'm going to have my caddisfly adults. I might even have a section for caddis that are still in their cases, as we know, the case makers. And the thing is, let's make that point. That's the other side of the science. Complete metamorphosis; they go through the same life cycle as a butterfly. They're like basically aquatic moths, right? So you're going to have a larval stage. They're going to have a pupal stage. They're going to go have, in a sense, their case, which is kind of like their crystallis or their cocoon. They're going to emerge out. So we're going to have patterns for that as well, and that's going to be based on observation and collection. And then I'm going to have my adults. Right, and now do you have
0: a box for each order? In other words, you have your Mayfly box, you have your oh, yeah,
1: that's the minimum. And that's what I and that's what I said. You You don't have to have 65 million boxes. I mean, I'm completely ADD and obsessed with that whole thing, but that's also you know, I think people that work on construction sites probably have a lot of hammers, they have more hammers than I do, I'm sure they do, It's tools, right? Do you have have, uh, different boxes for different times of the year,
0: different seasons?
1: No, but I do break yeah. them up. Well, no, that's not true. I have winter boxes. What I do is that I make sure that I have still water boxes. Mm-hmm. I make sure that my I have streamer boxes. That's important. I do separate out what I call spaghetti and meatballs, which is going to be my worms and my eggs. I mean, that's a kind of important thing. To keep right. that kind of separate. And then I think it's very important to separate your fly boxes into aquatic orders. Why? And so here's what I do. When we do our classes, Roger, I'm going to give you four vials when we go out under the water. So if I'm with a group and you're going to have one vial for mayflies, one vial for stoneflies, so there's going to be isopropyl alcohol in there. That's not ideal thing. We don't need to get into that, but not for long-term creation, but that's fine. 70% isopropyl. Do not save specimens in water. They're just going to rot. So you want to have some alcohol. And then I'm going to have a vial for mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, and the miscellaneous taxa. So that could be leeches that could be worms that could be beetles that could be lots of things like that right so and i want to do the same thing with my fly boxes as a fly fisher is like hey you know what i know the mayflies blueing olives are coming off the trichos are coming off we're having pmd hatches right now we're having you know quills whatever it is so there's my mayfly boxes and so i'm going to have the mayfly stonefly and i think if you can at least separate that i don't think i'm probably the only person i know that has a separate box for caddis larva, okay? I But that's what I do, right? So I guess it's probably a little bit different. But just having, most of our boxes have at least two pages in them, I mean, or whatever, but at least have a caddis box. And if you need to, put caddis on there, whatever. You don't need to put, you know, I get a lot of clients that want, they want to name every fly. And that's like, you know what? I can name most of the bugs, but there's too many flies. I can't teach you flies. I can teach you bugs. But mm-hmm. have your caddis, have your bay flies, have your stoneflies. Have your, major, have your streamer boxes in at least like those five or six categories, and you're going to be all set. I bring way too many flies to the water, but that's, I think that's the basic way to do that. And it just makes sense because it's the way the fly shop does it. So why wouldn't mm-hmm. you do the same thing on the river? Why don't you have your boxes separate out into your major orders and the life cycles within those orders themselves? Now, do you
0: have – I'm assuming since you live in Colorado that your Mayfly box probably has – just the mayflies that exist in Colorado, right? I mean, if yes. you don't have some of the eastern yeah. mayflies and so forth, so you would have separate boxes if you were going out
1: east to fish, you'd organize a box for. Yeah, those and they're mayflies. my. Like, yes, exactly. And I think that, you know, I always say a good metal of a fly shop is that they're not tight with information and you don't feel intimidated when you walk in and they are helpful. I would say my favorite thing, I love to walk up to a river that I have never fished before. And I mean, I can tell you, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I was on the Provo and I had my green license plate and I was in Utah, you know, and there's a little bit of friction there sometimes. And there was a guy guiding and I kind of felt for him and I watched him and I could see that his clients weren't catching anything. And, And I went out there and I did some collecting and I just started slamming fish and he walked up to me and he said how long have you been fishing here and i said oh i don't know probably about 45 minutes and he goes no how long have you been fishing the provo i said 45 minutes right and but what i did is i went out and i actually collected and then i handed him some flies and i said try these and then i watched his clients you know immediately hook up onto fish because of going out and doing the observations and the things and so what i love to be able to do is to walk up to a river and have enough flies that I've never fished before in my life, do a little bit of collecting, do my science, find some flies, because there's not always a fly shop available. And I'll tell you what, this is the one thing I like to say. You know who the expert is on the water that day? It's not that guy behind the desk that probably hasn't fly fished in two months. It's just been some kid that's working behind the counter. You're the expert. You're, it's on you, because I can tell you how many times I've had rods rigged up, ready to go, that worked the day before, and we nailed it, And I'm like, you know what? I don't even have to re-rig my rods. I'm going to give these to my clients. And we can't catch a damn thing at that point, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to start over. That's really important. So every day you're in and the expert is you. It's not the guy in the fly shop. Hopefully, they're giving you good information. Hopefully, they're doing the best. But you know what? A lot of times that little cup they give you, there's not a fly in there that even works. And then you go,
2: I just drove two
1: and a half hours. What do I do? You know what? I'm the one that needs to actually go out there and kind of figure this out at that point. I think that's right. super important to be able to walk up Very any river yeah. and figure it out. I love yeah. doing that. That's one of my, but you got to have a lot of flies do that too, to be fair. Yeah.
0: Very good advice. Very good advice, Robert. Rick Takahashi again, talking about caddis right. says, are caddis present in still waters and what conditions do lakes have to support caddis?
1: Well, yes. And The caddis hatches that we have in Stillwater, there's quite a few species. That's our largest purely aquatic order that we have in the world. There's over 1,600 species just in North America, and there's over, gosh, I want to say 15,000 species. It's a large, caddises are, in fact, we don't even know a lot of the caddises that exist. And so to answer Rick's question, basically, it's not what the, what kind of conditions the water needs to be, it's how they've adapted to the water conditions. So it's kind of reversed in that sense. Mm. And mm-hmm. what I will say from a practical standpoint, if you, when you watch caddis emerge and that can be things like, I mean, there's limnophilids and just, I just know a lot of technical names for those. I don't know, really know, Silver sedge, summer sedge. There's some cattas that, that are pretty common. There's some smaller ones that do their thing. Not a lot. I mean still mostly in, in moving water, but there are quite a few species. But the great thing about caddis is, again, being that observer, if you ever watch caddis come up off a lake, they take off like a 747. They come up, they dry off their wings, and then they start skating across the water, and they take off. And one of the greatest presentations of still water when there's a caddis hatch, if you watch that behavior, take a caddis, anything you want to just be an elk hair caddis, Rick wouldn't know how to tie that because he's just not really a big tie. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's learning. I'm teaching him. I'm oh, teaching him. He's got that big bag of fire. He's got this giant eye. It's the size of it's like a football. Uh, hopefully he's laughing right now.
0: But anyway,
1: <laughs> strip, watch I think he's driving that.
0: over to your house to get you.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's, but watch that behavior. That thing, and, and you watch them take off. And so if you take a, a caddis and you strip a dry caddis across the top of the water, that will trigger a feeding instinct on trout that like you've never seen because that's what they're actually doing. That's where we're coming back to the observer. What is that fish mean? It's not seeing that caddis just sitting there. That caddis wants to get the hell off the water as fast yeah, as before it Before it gets eaten. Before it gets eaten. <laughs> yeah, and so they yeah. totally take off like a jetliner. And I love doing that. And you watch it and boy, it'll it's like a hit on a grasshopper. That I always say a grasshopper and a big stonefly, you know, like a, your salmon flies, those are like T-bone steaks. You know, they'll just, Slam the heck out of them. And so that's a great presentation on still water. So basically so, the ones that are there have gill structures that have adapted to lower <clears throat> oxygen levels. And that's basically the caddis that we find on in still water because you don't so have when, oxygen levels. So when I walk up
0: to my little lake by my house and I see activity on the surface, dimples, things flying over the water, what am I Compare the caddis to the mayflies that may be coming off of that water? what am I looking for? That I've got the jetliners taking off. How do the mayflies come off that water? And how, you know, how can I tell from a yeah. distance which ones are which? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, I will just add a little on there. Let's decipher fish feeding behavior. Are we sipping? Are we porpoising? Are we busting out of the water? Those are big things. Our, no, no, um, no, no. I'm just talking about the, the insects coming off the water. Right, right. But anyway, oh. so that'll tell you a lot right there. So just make sure we're cognizant of how the fish are feeding itself, so, but basically the canisters take a little longer sometimes for their wings go out so they tend to kind of run across the water a mayfly sits there and, and remember that's the subamago stage right so they're they're going to molt it's the only insect that molts and sheds an exoskeleton one more time after an adult so what the mayfly is going to do it's going to come off the water they're going to shed their exoskeleton and they use that as kind of a raft they dry out their wings you don't really even see this happening. It's really interesting. And then they go and fly to the shore, and then they actually molt one more time, and that's when they become a dun, and that's when they become sexually oh. mature and a magum. And so they actually look a little different, actually, as far as if you're really into tying, there's as far as them being opaque as opposed to crystal clear, you'll see a difference in that. Now, remember, stoneflies are going to crawl out of the water, and your midges, which is our fourth order, just to touch on that, is going to come directly out. And that's not going to be, they're just going to come out. Midges basically are aquatic flies. That's basically all they are. are. Some of them bite, some of them don't. I mean, some of them are terrestrial, some of them are semi-terrestrial, some are semi-aquatic. There's a lot of different things going on there. But basically, we should very easily be able to look at, if you said, is that a swallow or is that a bald eagle? It's not too much to ask the fly fisher to go, you know what? Those are caddis coming off. Those are mayflies. That's a stonefly I see over on the shore. Those are midges. It's not that much to ask, and it's not that hard. Now, if you want to know which mayfly it is, that takes a lifetime of study. But you know what? It's not that important to be that – you know, it doesn't have to be that hard. I mean, if you can just look at size, color, and profile. So hopefully that kind of answers. But they're still all going to come out of the water column, and they're going to have some – and that can vary to species and genera too. I mean, depending on the genus that they're actually – how they actually act and how they emerge, but they're all going to come directly out of the water column, except stoneflies, which always crawl out. And that's a whole uh-huh. other discussion that we could have maybe another time because that's a whole other, you know, we could probably do a whole show just on different orders, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we do have some questions, and I want to kind of squeeze these in because people take time sure. to write them in. Don in Bozeman, Montana wrote in, he says, Please talk about coronamids. How? they vary so much in size, streams versus lakes, colors, where to find in the water column, et cetera. Also, could you discuss methods of fishing chironomid imitation? So that's, we're in the midge yeah. realm mm-hmm. there,
1: right? Yeah, well, that's, I'll make that short. You're going to find larger chronomids in lakes. And basically most of them, as we know, I will say this midges, which we call chronomids, chironomides, they're, it's one of the things I like to point out to people. They're either going to be red or white or off-white, the larvae. They're never going to be black or brown. That's going to be the pupa stage. So I just want to kind of let people know that sometimes because when do you want to fish that pupa stage? I know, and I will answer the question directly here in a second, but it's when you start to see the midges and maybe the pupa are coming up and you have to look at their life cycle and how they float up at the top. There's a bunch of stuff. But the bottom line is that because of the lack of oxygen, the less oxygen you have within still water... The reason a lot of those – the reason the larva is bright red like that is because of hemoglobin, okay, and that helps them maintain oxygen within their bodies, right? And as opposed to when you go to a tailwater or you go to a river, looking at coronamid larva, they look like little threads of white and red string. I mean literally, if like tying string, size 14, small, you know, just unithread, just really small little things that you can hardly see because they have more oxygen and so you're not going to find bigger midges in moving water as opposed to to still water where they have larger bodies because basically of what's happening with temperature and of course oxygen levels so you're going to see and that's why we fish these really big chronomid patterns because they're actually pretty big you see these big red things you know we call them what, piranha cones, snow cones, things like that. You see those really big things? And then that, they could also take, fish could also take those for aquatic worms too, because you're going to find aquatic worms both in still water and and also in the moving water as well. So I, I always say, I asked trout, what did you think that was? Like, what did you take that for? You know,
2: and they never <laughs> answered
1: me. They just say, you know what? I can't breathe. Take this hook out of my mouth and put me back in the water so I can live. They never seem to... They never seem to answer my question. They just thought, I thought it was food, and now I have a hook in my mouth. How about that? Um, And I'm embarrassed in front of all my friends. That's usually uh, usually the answer to that. I've got a couple other questions.
0: Yeah, okay. We've got a couple other questions coming in on the Internet here. Phil McCartney in Kentucky says, if there's no hatch going on, what is your decision process leading to a progression of flies to use?
1: Yeah, uh, start on the bottom and work up through the water column, obviously. And I think th- that what he wants, that Phil wants to remember, is that they are cows. They do go into a diapause state where they do sleep a little bit. They don't really sleep. Fish don't sleep per se. That's not my expertise, so someone might yell at me about that. But but basically, trout are kind of always. Fish are always feeding, and uh, they're rummaging around and foraging for food and so i'm going to start where it's easiest i want to hit them on the head with that size 22 gg betis or whatever it is i want to get that down to them and that's where i'm going to start if that doesn't work and it's the right time of year i might start ripping some streamers just to see if i can move a few fish but that also has that has to do with temperature again do they have the oxygen to want to chase bigger imitations So we always have to ask ourselves that that's a huge thing but i'm always going to start smaller and then i'm going to move well, I'll start bigger and then I'll move smaller if that doesn't work in pattern size because maybe I don't really know what's under there. So I'll start a little bit bigger. Maybe I start with a 16 and then I, by the time I'm done, I end up with a 22 or a 24 nymph. And then I also might work the water column up a little bit like that. But if I see no surface activity, no feeding activity, and I know the fish are going to be eating, which they always are, then I'm going to start on the bottom and try to hit um, them on the head with those flies.
0: Yeah. Okay. Phil had another question here. He says, When I've been in northern Minnesota and and big hexagena mayflies are hatching, the fish have ignored whatever fly I tried. It (laughs) seems to not matter whether I tried to match the hatch or threw something meant to stand out as different. Should I attempt to annoy the fish in the striking? Please tell me you feel my pain and have something to try when all else fails. Is there a fly of last resort you can share with us? (laughs) I'm
1: gonna. Since we don't have much time left, I'm gonna give you one word, and that's the word is a beetle. That's it. And I get it because <laughs> yeah. it's a numbers game. And I'm not kidding. Beetles yeah. are, are, I think, are the most underfished imitation in the middle of a trico hatch or a blueing olive hatch. I will throw a beetle because they are being so selective, and it's a numbers game. I'm like, you know what? Go ahead and just throw them a refrigerator. I mean, whatever you want to throw them. But yeah, I would say. That's always one of my go-to is some type of a beetle pattern just to get them out of their hypnotic thing of where they're feeding on those big hexes and things like that. Because, you know what, you don't really stand a chance because, you, I mean, those hatches where he comes he comes from, people drive off the sides of bridges because there's so I many can't of them. can see the road? The <laughs> yeah, no, and it's oily. That's why they call them fish flies. I mean, oh. they literally drive off the road and people have car accidents. That's how bad the, oh my God. those, those hatches are. I mean, they're so prolific and you're one little fly out there, what chance do you really have? It's a hard thing. So, yeah, something either on, in the film to entice them a little bit, but ultimately, really, I think beetles are the most underfished, and it's the largest aquatic order. It's the largest insect order we have in the world is our beetles. That's the, most, that's the largest order that we have, and not. And we don't even know. We're at 450,000 species of beetles, and yet people don't tend to fish them. or maybe throw a mouse out there or something like that. I don't know. You know, baby duck, maybe.
0: Yeah. We have a couple of questions in here about books. Adam in Fairbanks, sure. Alaska, and Gary in North Carolina. Adam lives I live in Flyfish Thai in Interior Alaska, mostly for grayling, and have been searching for good entomology book for insects on or around waterways here and haven't been able to find any. Do you have any suggestions you can point me to in the right direction? And then Gary also has a question. He says, he fishes Pennsylvania. He says, as far as bug books go, do, would you recommend the 100-level book on identification? So maybe you can give us some some recommendations there,
1: Robert. Sure. Well, first first thing I'd say is if you're fishing for grayling, it doesn't matter. I love fishing for grayling, and they are the most aggressive and stupid fish I've ever seen in my life. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. They are so fun. Unfortunately, with Alaska, because of how glaciation works, and we can get into a bunch of science about that, you don't really have a lot of choices when it comes to aquatic invertebrates. It's fairly limited as as far as that goes. I have never seen, and maybe he would disagree, but in my times of actually targeting grayling in inner Alaska, as I head up into the Fairbanks area, rather, as opposed to into the capital, out of the park and those areas there, grayling are just and I know he's not talking about that fish in particular, but they just don't seem to be very discerning when it comes to that. And also, other than mosquitoes, you know what, you don't have a lot of diversity in Alaska. You'd think you would, but that mm-hmm. has, to, but that's temperature-based. So, yeah. you know, unfortunately, it's very limited, and that's why so many people in Alaska fish egg patterns and streamers and things like that. Yeah. When the Dolly Martins come in the fall, maybe you want to fish eggs and things like that. But You know, we always make, guides make fun of other guides in Alaska because they always say, oh, well, all they do is fish egg patterns. That's all they do. But you don't really have the insect life. But I'll tell you what, I've never been bitten so bad trying to use the bathroom in the woods when it came to mosquitoes other than Alaska. I don't think I had any blood left. I did, yeah.
0: Yeah, I did. By the way, I did well with nymphs up in Alaska for both like chum salmon, Dolly Varden, uh, char, those kind of things. They worked well. And it was just kind of nondescript. You weren't trying to match the hatch or anything. It was yeah. Just, they like
1: shiny you know. stuff, bead you know, things with beads on them. I mean, some color, yeah. and that's pressure based. And also, it's numbers related to just because it's so prolific. These fisheries are so prolific, and they haven't been bastardized like we have in so many places, like where we live. You know, in this area, it's just a it's a, it's a different ball game altogether. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as far as bibliographies go, you know, it's funny. I have some really great bibliographies. I mean, Dave Whitlock, guy, guy, to a trout, trout foods is, is is great. There's so many new books coming out. The top 100, the 101, yeah, I mean, that's a good book. But it depends how much science. Gary Lafontaine's caddisflies is is one of the definitive oh, yeah. publications ever on caddisflies that you'll ever find. Right. Mark, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but Schweiter. Let's I'm trying to think. There's nymphs by. Uh, right. Well, there's a lot of things. And I have a great collection. The thing is, we've gotten to that point from a tech standpoint that there's so much good information on the internet, unless you like to feel the weight of a book and the smell of paper in your hand. I don't know, which I do. I enjoy that. But there's so much good current information on the internet that it's almost like the books have just become obsolete to a certain extent. But And there hasn't been a lot of good new publications out there compared, because what happened is we had a renaissance in the 60s, and so all these guys came out and started going, hey, maybe we should learn about invertebrates and entomology. And so the LaFontaine's and the Ernie and and people like that started writing these books. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, yeah, there's all this stuff. And But, you know, a lot of the color plates are kind of antiquated in a lot of these books. And now we can actually have, you know, everybody knows that, what's his name, Troutnut. He's a great entomologist. He's actually, I think, originally from Alaska. I use a lot of his materials. And so mm-hmm. there isn't much that he doesn't have on there. So, so really, it's kind of like even tying. We used to have tying books. And I love Charlie Craven. He's amazing. I love Ricky. You know, he does amazing stuff. But you know what now you just get on the internet and it's like wow you can just in, yeah. in real time you get to watch somebody tie a fly and Well I there, think is that's a, kind of going there is there so. is one
0: I might recommend to Gary in fact Stackpole who sponsors a lot of our shows publishes pocket guides and there's a pocket guide for Pennsylvania hatches so you yeah. might check that out 50 sure. yeah so you know, and there's some others out there like that, that, that are specific to different parts of the country that they publish. Yeah, the I don't know them all. The
1: good. Yeah. The, the yeah. one is good by, uh, you've you had him on a show. Is it Gary? Trying to say, uh, Gary. I can't hmm. think of his name. But anyway, but yeah, there's some, and those pocket guides can be good too. And that is, that's, a, there's a good point there because having that, because most of the time, thank goodness, when we're on the water, we don't have access to an app for most places. And so you can't just mm-hmm. pull up the app and go, oh, what is this bug, and take a picture of it and have it id and things like that. So having some of the waterproof pocket guides, I think just for orders is important to have. If, But I would also say that hopefully you can get to the point and maybe, like I said, if I can get people to come out and have me do some classes for them, I can talk and do pre- presentations all you want. But, it, it, but I always say if I want this to stick and you want to get passionate about it, let me take you to the water and let's collect bugs and that's ultimately my goal because it's fun and the light bulb goes on because otherwise it's very abstract you're just looking at pictures you're just talking about things and we can talk about structures and how you determine the different orders but if i can get you on the water and i'm sure that the groups that i get to talk to around the country can attest to that because it's like watching little kids in kindergarten in the sandbox for the first time and these are grown adults that have been fly fishing for years and they're like Oh, my God, I had no idea all this stuff was in the water. And what is yeah. it? I'm like, that's a Mayfly. That's, and to see that childhood passion come out is genuinely oh, yeah. the most fulfilling thing for me for the passion that I have for the sport, if you want to call it a sport, whatever you want to call it. But I absolutely love to be able to take grown adults and see them turn into kindergartners. It's so fun. And so I encourage people to go out there and you know, even if you got a pair of nylons or just a painting strainer for painting or whatever, or just buy a saying and do some collecting. And even if you know it's just experience and realize that we're the caretakers of this resource in that sense and see what's out there and see the diversity because it's a whole other aspect that often gets ignored because we just want to get the right fly and catch the fish. But then you get to another point where you're like, you know what? I'm standing in a beautiful place and I get to go under the water And look at all this cool stuff. And I don't know what it is, but I'm going to learn it. And and I want to learn it. And it's going to make me better at fly fishing and more productive. And that's always kind of my pitch because it's it's true. And it doesn't have to be intimidating or scary. You don't need to know the fancy words, but you will be much better if you put some names on things. You know, that's always my, that's always kind of what I like. Yeah.
0: And in general, it's just, we all like to get out there to fish to get closer to nature And there you go. You get a little bit even closer to nature, right? Understand what's really going on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Have that appreciation. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, we've run out of time, Robert. Oh my uh, God. I feel like
1: we talked for five minutes. So that's great. Yeah, I know. It
0: flew by, really flew by, but very interesting. Lots of fun talking to you, but hang tight with me because we're going to be giving away a membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership To Trout Unlimited, we're going to give away your DVD set, so uh, The Bug Guy, Entomology for the Fly Fisher. So hang tight. A few more minutes. We're going to give away our prizes, and uh, we'll call it a night. Great. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a -a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, camaraderie, peer coaching, a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org or call 616-855-4017. Again, that's fishon.org. Dot org or call 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away our prizes. And the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. Now, if you didn't register for the night show, it's too late now, but make sure you do for the next show so you don't miss out on winning some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we will contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. For the first thing that we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, and to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Now, if you don't know about FFI, go there, check them out, and if you don't win tonight, join anyway. They're a great organization to support, and they do a lot for things, both warm water, cold water, salt water, all around the world. So, all right, so my database going here, and... Okay, so the winner for this is Brent Walchuk, Brent Walchuk in Indiana, Brent Walchuk in Indiana. So congratulations, Brent. Thanks for playing, and I'm sure you'll enjoy your membership. And now we'll give away one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And let's see here, and Trout Unlimited, if if you want to learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org. Tonight, Robert was talking about Trout Magazine, which comes from, if you have a membership to Trout Unlimited, you get Trout Magazine. So uh, something that's always, I always look forward to reading. And it looks like our winner there is Peggy Rios in New Mexico. Peggy Rios in New Mexico. So congratulations, Peggy. And uh, I know you'll enjoy your membership to Trout Unlimited as well. And now let me just clear my queue here. We're going to give away some of Robert's DVDs. So the way to, I already got reviews coming in excellent from Gary Kaufman. So Robert, you you did a good job, buddy. <laughs> I, well, you've, been, you've been doing it for a while i know so it comes easy i know and i know it's hard for you to hold back robert
1: so i appreciate that. oh i just feel like we need to have 10 more shows and yeah. we have only got into really one order we have yeah more to talk about so
0: yeah and we might might Thank just you. do that we'll have to talk about well, that, 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 so. that yeah that'd yeah. be it'd
1: be great i'd love to
0: Yeah. So let's see who wins these DVDs. The way you play this is you go to our homepage. There's a form there where you could have asked questions during the show. And uh, you're going to put in your answer there with your name and your location, your email. And uh, whoever answers the question first is going to win Robert's DVDs. And so I'm going to make it really easy tonight. And the question is, what is the bug of last resort? Bug, Bug of last resort. I could have thrown in some Latin things there, but I don't know any Latin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any Latin, so oh well. Yeah. Did you take Latin? I've got to wait a minute while people answer. But Robert, did you take Latin in college? Was is that part of the requirement for being an entomologist, or you just uh, I went, it as uh,
1: Catholic school? It was really. I just you had to learn it, right? And, as the nuns oh, yeah? slapped you with a ruler. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh-oh. So no, you you learn it by default as an entomologist at like at CSU where I studied them. I mean, you just learn the Latin names, and sometimes they can be easier for people. That, if it's not fly fishing oriented, it's easier for identification. Yeah, yeah, how. Yeah, you learn that. So you got to be careful though, because it can. So I think definitely... we got our
0: first winner here, Bob Younger in Indianapolis. He says beetle. All right, Bob. Is That correct? Yep. Sorry, J. Rios, mayfly isn't it? So. But guess what? Bob Younger is not the only winner tonight because Robert has generously offered to give away three sets of DVDs. There are two set
1: DVDs, so yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Two set DVDs, but three of them. So, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So, our next winner is, oh, Elizabeth McCartney. So, Phil, I guess you're not getting this prize. <laughs> so, <laughs> Elizabeth's gonna have to get it. And then we also have Jeff Pritt in Zanesville, Ohio. The reason I was kidding is Phil McCartney puts his wife's name in there. I think he does that to to try to win more things. But <laughs> <laughs> I know That's who he true. is. So, That's so anyway, true. but uh, but yeah, the McCart. Let's put it the McCartneys are going to get their set of DVDs along with Jeff Pritt in Zanesville, Ohio. So each of you winners need to send me your mailing address. And you can do that in the same form that you just sent in your answer on. And I have your names. I have your email addresses. I need your shipping or mailing address so that Robert can send you the DVDs. And I guess since you answered, you must have a DVD player. So See, Robert, there's more of us out there than you might think. And there's more coming in right now, by the way. Dust
1: off the cobwebs uh, and the dust and plug that sucker in there, right? That's, well, like you never playing. You know
0: what? I'm keeping mine because I have a whole bunch of fly fishing DVDs from over the well, years. Well, you know all what? You
1: them. did such a good yeah. job. I think you're going to win a, D- a, a DVD set too. I think we're going to have to take care of you. We'll have to do that. <laughs> okay, so. um, all right. <laughs> especially if you want to fall asleep, it's a great it's, it's a great set of DVDs just to fall asleep to. So, I think that's fantastic. All right. All right.
0: Well, good. That was fun. That was fun. Hey, Robert, I really appreciate you being on the show tonight, taking your time out and sharing your knowledge with us. It's been great and really appreciate
1: it. Well, I wish we could touch on a little more but then maybe we can do that in the future. So Yeah,
0: yeah. We we did we've done that before, part 2 and uh, bugs 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 and that's uh, we'll figure that out. So Fantastic. sounds good. All right. Hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu in the archive, you'll find all of our past shows over 350 which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase like trout, tarpon, entomology, Madison River, that kind of stuff. So go in there, poke around, and I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised by all the different shows that we have. I think we have over 280 shows or something, or 380 shows. Uh, so we get you quite up there in the numbers. Our next broadcast will be September 13th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And on that show, I will interview Michael Caranci, and our topic will be for the show will be Mongolia, Genghis Khan's home waters. Michael is one of fly fishing's most experienced and globally respected professionals. He manages the operations, guest services, and conservation programs for Fish Mongolia and Mongolia River Outfitters, the premier fly fishing guides and outfitters for fly fishing for taimen in, in Mongolia. Join us to learn what an adventure to Mongolia is all about and how you can catch the largest trout in the world, tymin, as well as lenok, grayling, and pike. Be sure to add this to your upcoming this upcoming show to your calendar. You'll find right under Michael's picture a place to add to your client calendar, and just click one of those buttons, put it on your calendar, and then you make sure you don't miss our next show. We'd like to thank Fly Fisher's International, Trout Unlimited, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Puglisi, flies for sponsoring our show tonight and don't forget to visit our website askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts thanks for listening to ask about fly fishing Internet radio podcast we hope you enjoyed the show that's it good night everyone and good fishing
2: yeah.